Welcome back, everyone. This is Matt Cooley, host of Upside Downside, where our panel explores the value creation angle of current news stories and how the actions we take affect profits and cash flow. And we do all this, at least most of the time, with a sense of humor, because if you've listened to us before, you know that we're funny people. By day, I'm the head of finance for the global network platform API business at Ericsson and a self-professed nerd for value creation and how it impacts companies and everyday folks. Joining me are distinguished panelists, Dana Price and Sami Akbay. Dana is CFO of an edtech company and never lets her burn rate get out of control. She also breaks technology, like last week when Dana was caught using so much data on her mobile plan that the nearby cell tower went up in flames. Welcome, Dana. I didn't think you knew about that cell tower, but thank you for having <laughs> me regardless. <laughs> Everybody knows about that cell tower. Uh, Sami Akbe is a technology executive and founder and is one of those people who knows how to shove data into the black box and make something useful come out the other side. That's Mr. Data to you. Thank you very much. Welcome, Sami. Thank you, Matt. Hi, Dana. We're going to talk about cultivated meats and meat substitutes today and how sustainable the value creation is around these products. And then we'll discuss why certain things seem to cost more in the US versus Europe. Pharmaceuticals and mobile plans come to mind, guys, but uh, for this conversation, we're even going to throw in concerts into that list. So let's nosh over cultivated meat, cultivated meats and meat substitutes first. It's funny, all these different words now for just a steak, right? We're now beyond the impossible burger and other plant-based meat substitutes. Mammoth meatballs and other delectable treats can be grown by using genetic sequences, basically as recipes, to multiply cells into enough material for a meal. I know this sounds appetizing, guys. While still too early to find cultivated meats at grocery stores, over 100 companies are apparently out there developing products, and these cultivated meats will join already available plant-based meat substitutes like the Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger with promises to save the environment and all of us from early death by cholesterol. Just as I was getting used to Impossible Burger for Taco Tuesdays at our house, I now apparently have more options. Dana, my friend, what are the upsides and downsides to cash flow and profits with all this? So I think you definitely just hit on one of the key uh, terms is options, right? If you have more options, you know, with typical supply and demand, right? So there's more options for people to choose from. Um, I think you're also, you know, a byproduct of that would, no pun intended, would be helping climate control. So that just sort of is a is a much greater sort of higher level need uh, that that is uh, clearly needed at the current time. You're saving the slaughter of am animals, uh, which obviously is a huge um, fight for some uh, various groups. I think, you know, from a genetic perspective, I, you know, just like anything when something new comes out is it's new. So you have the adoption curve. But you're also going to have a lot of different stages of folks who may or may not have uptake on that because it involves genetics. So, you know, if you want to go out on the extreme, if you're using genetics to make a, you know, replacement meat product, well, could you do something else with that? Like maybe cure cancer? And would that be a better research uh, in, in the lab than making a non-meat product? So <laughs> I, I think, 
you know, there'll be investment. The good side is, you know, the upside is there'll be investment and there'll be early stage investors that will be willing to invest in this. But the question is, you know, at what point do you get it right and how much of the population is is willing to sort of eat a non-meat product? Um, on the downside of this, you are clearly going to put the farmers out of business eventually. You know, that's really, really long term. But as you start to take livestock you know, a cattle farmer offline or reduce his stock or her stock. And what, what, so how are you going to subsidize that on the curve from, you know, zero to a hundred and how do you reskill or upskill or what does that farmer and the farmer's family do for their, you know, wages and to make a living going forward if you are essentially not going to be using livestock um, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, the FDA obviously is going to play in this. I don't know whether that's an upside or a downside, but there needs to be regulations, just like any food product that's put in a store. Um, there's going to be staunch advocates of it and there's going to be staunch opponents of it based on how you feel about using genetics. Uh, so I, I think it's an interesting concept. I think, you know, most folks have tried some sort of non-meat product, um, taste like meat, you know, but sometimes you just want a steak. So I, I think it's an interesting <laughs> battle going forward. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you, you kind of touch on it a bit, but the ethics of, of you know, altering genes. So this, this mammoth meatball story is interesting because they are altering genetic material in order to grow these mammoth meatballs. That's exactly what they're doing. And um, in fact, I think the article that I, I focused on the most, they um, the G- DNA sequence wasn't complete. So they completed it by using elephant DNA or something like that. So you know, there's so many things going on here and how those all distill down to cash flow and profits at, at the end is, is fascinating. I mean, I, I think it's anybody's guess. It is. I mean, it's it's a it's just a new product if you, in, in in a really sort of warped sort of way. Um, <laughs> but it, like any product, you'll have uptake, you'll have uh, cost, failed cost, failed tries, investments lost. But then you'll have some that hit um, and will be supported and will be approved um, for you know mass consumption. So I, I, but you're you know this when you get into genetics, you get into a very probably hot topic of discussion. Um, and you will have two sides of that of that coin, um, and then the conspiracy theorists as well. Yeah, interesting. Sami, uh, what's in your mind about this? I see upside and more upside. I don't really see as much downside, ah, and I don't okay. really see too much <laughs> of an ethical issue. Not ethical, but the genetics and playing with the genetics of it does not bother me as much. I think that cat's out of the bag and it's inevitable. We're going to use it, you know, and it's every new technology has its, uh, you know, risk exposures as long as people do it in a kind of um, controlled and responsible fashion. So there are a few reasons why I think it's a lot of upside. First of all is the, um, you know, humane and sustainability side of it right because not killing animals is going to bring a substantial number of uh new uh i guess like participants into the marketplace right there are going to be a lot of people who don't uh eat meat 
for either ethical reasons or religious reasons or for reasons that you know keep them out of this market that's probably going to be another billion people eating meat that were previously uh, selective about that. So the second part of it is the environmental impact. Cattle, cattle is you know almost fifteen percent of the greenhouse gas emissions. It's uh, a tremendous impact on clean water supply. It uses like majority of the uh, agricultural land it causes defore deforestation it causes uh, pollution it leads to loss of biodiversity in a lot of the countries all of these things get mitigated or somewhat controlled or reduced uh, by the virtue of having this and then of course from um, the kind of more progressive perspective more scientific perspective it could help build customized nutrition for people who have uh, needs that are not addressed uh, with the current food supply supply chain and you know it's um, now there are also side effects obviously for example as much as i love my uh, fake burgers they're processed foods they have quite a bit of room to get better, uh, but I'm excited about it overall. You, you know, you hit on something that I've been reading a lot about lately, and I don't think folks focused on initially when Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger and those those uh, companies started coming out with their products. It, it, it may be plant-based, but it is very, very heavily processed. And these cultured meats which are actual meat products, they're not plant-based, it looks the same. I mean, they're growing them on the side of of vats in labs. So, um, you know, you're hitting on something there that I think is important. You know, it is very heavily processed food. Um, it's also interesting um, just looking at um, Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger, those, those two companies, one is sort of taking off and gaining market share. The other one is sinking for various reasons. So it's... I think it's an open bag, whether uh, open question, whether this stuff is is uh, you, you know how long term it will it, it's going to be, um, but on the cultured meat side, this is brand new, and I think that's interesting too. You know, both of you, what about taste? Like, I don't, I don't mind the um, plant based meat substitutes as much if they're heavily seasoned, if they're sitting in a taco or something like that. But I find that the burgers by themselves. And I I, pro, I prefer a real beef burger. I'm curious if, if both of you have any perspective on the actual taste. I prefer the real thing still, but at the same time, as you said, if it's in a sauce or if it's in a taco, uh, it's kind of difficult to tell the difference. And these are the early days. I can only imagine it will get better and it will get perfected. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the only thing I would add is, you know, I don't eat a meat hamburger plain anyway. So naturally by default, I have to put ketchup on it because I'm just, you know, <laughs> I, and that's what you do to a hamburger, right? So, right, exactly. so I'm, I'm, you know, I have, 
you know, it it does taste a little bit differently, but it doesn't bother me because I'm still just naturally putting ketchup on it. And that's just a mental thing with me personally. But so so from my perspective, I'm perfectly fine on the taste because to your point, it, there's always some additional thing that you're so used to doing with a regular meat product that it just naturally carries over. Mm-hmm. So, so it sounds like if I sum this one up, it sounds like the three of us are willing to make that transition. Um, and, you know, to Dana, to your point, in, in many respects, we're going to see a normal product life cycle here. Um, it's just, it's got a, probably a lot more twists and turns given the ethical issues and, and other issues that we've discussed. But um, it sounds like sounds like we're on board uh, for the long term, and and uh, this should be an interesting ride. So, okay, all right, that that was good. That was good. Let's move on to consumer prices um, in the U.S. versus Europe. So, at least for certain things. Um, there can be really big differences. And so I'm glad you both agreed to talk about this one because this one uh, has been on my mind for a while. Did you two know that Beyonce fans here in the US could actually save money by flying to Europe for her concerts rather than stay home? And according to a Telefonica study, Americans pay on average two times more than Western European countries do for a gigabyte of data. And when it comes to pharmaceuticals, the common storyline in the U.S. has been prices correlate to high R&D spend, and that's why Americans pay so much. But a study published last year by the University of California concluded that no such correlation actually exists, and pharma companies are simply charging what the markets will bear, which sounds a lot like basic value creation. So, you know, those are just three examples, but... um, Sami, what do you, what do you make of all of this in terms of value creation? I think that all three of those things that you touched on have uh, different kind of reasoning and different basis. Uh, for starters, I mean, price is the value you capture in the eyes of the customer, and it does have quite a bit of uh, dependency on people's ability to buy, as well as the cost of providing a service, right? So if you look at something like um, the mobile plans and the cost of gigabyte of data, uh, laying infrastructure in a country like United States where the landmass is so uh, humongous um, could be more uh, expensive. And therefore, you know, when you kind of take a cost plus approach to pricing, it might be more justifiable that you know, when you have a mobile plan in the US, even when it's just domestic, you're almost like covering 50 countries in Europe, mm. right? Uh, whereas if in Europe, if I have a plan that works in Germany and then I go to a different country, from country to country or from region to region, I might have some price differentiation. So that's one side of it. The Beyonce ticket example, the average disposable income per person I think is significantly different and that that is a byproduct of um, how much of the services are socialized right in europe someone might be making a lot less money uh, and someone may end up with a lot less disposable income in their pockets but they're not paying nearly as much for rent and food and healthcare and certain other services so there is a relative value to what you pay for a ticket which is uh, smaller than, uh, smaller in nominal terms than what you pay in the US, 
But if you actually compare that to percentage income, that might be uh, that might be comparable. And then uh, when it comes to pharma, that is that's actually the most interesting one because uh, I had a friend who used to work for a large pharmaceutical company in the pricing department. They had a very sizable pricing department. It was all based on different countries' ability to pay and whether or not. The more developed, richer countries had a moral obligation to uh, foot the R&D component of the bill, right? I mean, if you made the R&D distributed equally across every country, you would make certain medication prohibitively expensive in parts of the world who may not be able to afford it. And does that have a moral uh, moral component? Are we required to subsidize uh, medicine in other regions. So I think all three of those have very different reasonings and very different um, kind of uh, philosophies behind why they exist. But I think overall, we take a pragmatic approach and uh, companies try to capture as much value as possible in the eyes of their customers when they uh, come up with their pricing. So it sounds like from your perspective, markets are acting rationally. Exactly. For for different drivers. How would you explain Canada, though? You know, right over the border, wealthy country, obviously smaller than us, but um, you know, drug prices are so much lower. I feel Canada is almost like the spoiled sibling, uh, you know, <laughs> given the size of the country and the population. There go our Canadian listeners. <laughs> okay. You know, it's like uh, that's that's essentially that uh, they have they're the free rider here. They they benefit uh, unnaturally from uh, being a neighbor of the United States in some ways, um, but at the same time, I don't think that's that might be the case only for med- uh, medicine or pharmaceuticals. Um, yeah, so that's that is an anomaly. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so rational markets overall. Uh, Dana, weigh in here. How do you see this? Sure. So from a from a pharmaceutical side or a medical side, you know, I sort of see it as, you know, what what will the market bear in the U.S. Right? Yeah, we pay a lot, but um, I think we also have access. And you know, for those who have you know private medical plans through their companies, you have access to choose your doctor. If you want to choose a surgery, um, whether it's required, necessary or not, and you choose the date in which you want to do it relatively soon. If you jump over to Europe under socialized medicine, that's not necessarily the case. Um, and, you know, if you think about the folks that are waiting for long, long periods of time just to have a basic routine procedure, you know, um, I'm willing to pay more on my side to basically be able to go see the doctor when I want to see the doctor or do what I want to do. Hmm. Um, and I think, point. you know, I look at it from sort of, and this may sound a little obnoxious, but what is my time worth? Um, my time is worth, you know, there's, there's a value associated with my time, right? I have limited resources across the company. Um, you know, I've got operations around the world. So yes, I might be paying more for certain things in the US, but I'm also looking like, you know, look at the energy costs in in Europe. It's skyrocketing. Um, My electric bill in my office in Europe has tripled compared to last year. Hmm. So while Europeans might have better cell phone plans or something like that, 
you know, they're also getting hit. I mean, let's not even, you know, the downside, huge downside. I think everybody knows what that is. Would you like to pay 20, 25% tax on everything? Um, I mean, think about it. We complain when sales tax goes up to 9%, but, you know, Europeans are paying that. <laughs> um, sure. So I, I think the whole that on top of everything else might sort of even it out compared to our little sales tax on top of what we're paying. So I, I just look at it from that perspective is, you know, what is the market willing to bear and what is my time worth? Right. Okay. So both generally feel that the markets, you both feel that they are acting rationally and the differences that we have in the U.S. are, are worth something. Yes. I, I don't think I can disagree with uh, either of those perspectives. Okay. Wow. So well, I mean, at the same time, the you know the markets acting rationally does not make me la- less angry about the prices of medicine and things like that. I may I may have a hard time stomaching it. I just you know I can understand it. Yeah, and you know, as we as we travel more and more all the time, right? And we experience these things with our friends and colleagues and and just through the news, you know, you wonder at some point will it have a you know, sort of blowback on prices back here, but maybe not. You know, this has been going on for a long time and prices still haven't adjusted. So, you know, that does argue for markets are acting uh, relatively rationally. Yeah, it's interesting. So, Dane and Sami, if you want to come over for a barbecue later, we're having lab-grown Mastodon rib roast. <laughs> Sami, you bring the Beyonce oh, tickets and Dana, you bring the cholesterol meds, my friend. Count me and I'll be right back. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you both for sharing your insights. And to our listeners, value creation is lurking everywhere. Keep your eyes peeled and look for our next episode soon. Thank you.